what happened to Sawit was political pressure. We know exactly that what he did was to protect the public interest, but he said that what we are doing is the right things to do. Even he himself is going to end up to jail. He will accept the circumstances because he doesn't see anything wrong at all from our union side, but it is about the political involvement just to destroy the union. We knew at the start of the pandemic that what our members were facing was an absolute shortfall in PPE. And that was a trade union issue, but it was also a patient safety issue. We knew that was real and we knew it was real from our surveys. Most times, people don't prioritize their issues. And because of the C-190 that covers everybody, every workplace, we have to serve especially those of us in the NLC as a voice with the voiceless because most of the time there is nobody to listen to their story. They've hired anti-union consultants to come to our facility and hold captive meetings designed to intimidate them, intervene with us, activating our federal rights to organize. They spread rumors and promoted fear by giving misleading information about the process itself and what will happen if associates decide to vote yes. It's an opportunity to have a longer discussion with the membership about the realities of how the economy works, of how their jobs are impacted by employers that choose to exploit workers. Because what we've seen, sadly, is while it may start with exploiting an undocumented worker and stealing an undocumented worker's wages, that translates into the non-union workforce regardless of documentation. We're these invisible and, and silent constituency that on the other hand continues to grow, continues to contribute to this economy, that is becoming more and more interconnected with the economic success of this country and nobody is really paying attention. I think Wisconsin produces more milk than Canada does. So the only way to get rid of it is to force someone somewhere in the world to take it off our hands. And of course, in order to do that, it has to be at a fairly low price. Hello, and welcome everyone to this week's Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a podcast built from over 130 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. My name is Mel Smith, and we have seven great segments picked out for you today. But if you are interested in more labor-related content, please visit laborradionetwork.org, where you can search by name, topic, and even location. Without further ado, here is our lineup. Our show starts in Thailand with Sawi Kawan, the Secretary General of the State Enterprises Workers Relations Confederation, or SERC, on the Labor Link podcast. Sawit has worked tirelessly to build solidarity between migrant workers and union workers in Thailand to improve workers' rights. Union Dues is back with special guest Tom Grinier, Chief Executive of the British Medical Association, the UK's doctors' union. Tom discusses their goal to balance this doctor's needs with those of their patients and how that mission has helped them throughout the pandemic. For our last international show, the Solidarity Centers podcast features Rita Gawit from the Nigeria Labor Council. She talks about some of their creative and inspirational strategies designed to fight against gender-based harassment in workplaces throughout Nigeria. Back in the States, John Youngston joins the checkout and talks about the working conditions at his employer, HelloFresh, as well as his and his colleagues' attempt to form a union and the company's latest response to their efforts. 
The AFL-CIO's State of the Unions podcast welcomes the new president of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, Jimmy Williams Jr. He highlights some of the pushback he has received for his advocacy of undocumented workers and the importance of a strong connected membership. In honor of Latina Pay Gap Day, El Despio features Erasema Garza, attorney and co-author of a report on the pandemic's impact on Latina workers. She explains the invisibility of Latinas in the workplace and the link between childcare and their wage gap. And finally, with a Wisconsin dairy farmer who has lived through it all, a Better World podcast traces the historical relationship between small dairy farms and government policies, starting with Reaganomics and ending on Trump's USMCA deal. This is Mel Smith with the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and here's our show. There will be no way for us to be able to solve every single problem of migrant workers here in Thailand. The only way we can do it, we need to have them to speak up about their problem. We need to have them form their own organization representing themselves. That's Asrin Kalpradap interpreting for Sawit Kawan, the Secretary General of the State Enterprises Workers Relations Confederation, or CERC, Thailand's largest union confederation. Asrin is with the Solidarity Center in Thailand. My name is Judy Gerhardt, and this is The Labor Link, a podcast about workers' rights and global supply chains where we share the personal stories and perspectives of the men and women organizing the workers who make our stuff. I am super excited to help share their stories. I hope you find them as inspiring as I do. This podcast is a collaboration between the Accountability Research Center and Empathy Media Lab. To hear more podcasts about workers' rights, visit laborradionetwork.org. So my name is Sawit Gawan. I am the General Secretary of CERC. I have been elected as the General Secretary of CERC since 2007. And my name is Asarin Gawpradao. I am the Program Officer with the Solidarity Center here in Thailand. But I have been involved in the labor movement for the past 15 years. So CERC is a UN confederation where a majority of our members come in from the state-owned enterprises. So 10 years ago, we started to strengthen the labor movement through organizing informal workers and migrant workers. And also a group of state employees who by law are not allowed to organize or form trade units. I wanted to know more about how Sawi, despite most of CERC's members being Thai nationals, had decided to actively support migrant workers and challenge government policies. Thailand has a significant migrant worker population, and in 2014, media exposés revealed corrupt government officials were involved in human trafficking in the seafood industry. I knew Sawit had been working on migrant issues well before those exposés on the seafood industry, so I asked for his perspective. So we see migrant workers' issue has been around human trafficking, violating migrant rights, and a lot of discrimination against migrant workers in all sectors. So back in 2007, Sawit 
become elected as the General Secretary of CERT, and he see that CERT has a bigger role in changing the national policy. So that's how we started to get involved and make the union to understand that migrant issues is related to our union issues too. This is a very impressive vision and movement that you've been building. But I also want to give a chance to Sawit to talk about the pressure that he's under because he's had this big vision and he's been a very important leader in building a bigger, broader movement. That was a train derailment in the southern part of Thailand. And it's killed seven people and 100 injured. So the union is going out, take action by calling for safety campaign. But according to the Labor Relations Act and with the Labor Court, they interpret the action from the union as a strike. So basically, when it's come to strike, the state enterprises, labor relations employees are not allowed to go on strike. So the government filed the case against the union on that. So Sawit was fired and another 12 fellow committee members also get fired. With that case, the company actually filed a criminal charge against them. What happened to Sawit was political pressure. We know exactly that what we did was to protect the public interest, but he said that what we are doing is the right things to do. Even he himself is going to end up to jail. He will accept the circumstances because he doesn't see anything wrong at all from our union side, but it is about the political involvement just to destroy the union. Migrant workers' issue here in Thailand won't be an easy fix because he thinks that after this COVID-19, it will be worse. After this COVID-19, all the international labor rights organizations need to work together because it will never be an easy fix for us on migrant workers' issue here in Thailand. It's hard not to see how the case against Sawi is political. It's a clear sign of efforts to restrict civic freedoms and, depending on the court case outcomes, may result in a tremendous miscarriage of justice against one of the most consequential human rights leaders in the country. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and what a show we have lined up for you. Our special guest is the British Medical Association's Chief Executive, Tom Grinier. This is an organisation with 150,000 members, overall assets of over 130 million quid, but it's dealing with chronic underinvestment in the health service, a pandemic of unrivaled, unprecedented proportions, and a generally hostile environment. Although Rishi Sunak has not said they, has not said the government's going to cut funding for X thousand, X tens of thousands of doctors. Nevertheless, the government has just admitted it's not going to hit its target for to recruit new GPs. The mere fact that the General Practice Committee is considering things that could end up in industrial action shows that there is a real challenge. And, and at the same time, the environment in which your members work has become increasingly hostile and fraught as well. I think one of the things that the pandemic has shown has been 
the importance of getting that balance and the importance of both understanding what our members are saying, but equally important, understanding where patients are coming from. So one of the crucial voices to me throughout the pandemic has been that of our patient liaison group as well. And making sure we have a thriving patient liaison group that I think help keeps us grounded within the BMA. And I th- I, what I would also contrast that with is throughout the pandemic, one of the things that we have done to stay in touch with our own members and the services that they're providing is to survey our members as regularly as possible. So again, we knew at the start of the pandemic that what our members were facing was, yes, there was an absolute shortfall in PPE. And that was a trade union issue, but it was also a patient safety issue. We knew that was real and we knew it was real from our surveys. And we could almost pinpoint it down to regions and hospitals. We knew that people from ethnic minorities were being impacted more by the virus at the beginning or one of the, one if not the first organisation to really highlight that in the press. And I think through our surveys, through working with our patient committee, again, it's keeping the core trade union of we look after our members married with the um so they can look after you piece because those are the 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 two sides of the bma that as i've uh, spoken about were at our absolute best when they're working in harmony one of the things that i'm particularly proud that we managed to deliver during lockdown is a co-created strategy we started that work on my arrival and um, actually one of the last face-to-face meetings we had in March 2020 was a one-day special meeting of BMA's council where we refined, um, we did a whole series of roadshows with the staff both across the country and here in London. We'd done sessions with the patient liaison group and the chair of the patient liaison group was part of the steering group that was helping pull that strategy together. And so when we then took that to our elected members who we'd consulted throughout the um, principal executive body and as with any trade union, in the BMA's case, the council, it had that feeling of being co-created by three different parts, the staff, the patients and the members. And having that patient voice, I think, makes it the stronger or the stronger for the strategy. So the four principal pillars are around, yes, member engagement, Yes, representing the profession, yes, influencing, and also running the BMA well. There is a strong strand within there of the professional activity piece combined with the negotiating, combined with the trade union. And I think overarching that, I'll keep coming back to our mission statement of looking after doctors so they can look after you. I mean, that's a fascinating picture that that, that you portray. And I imagine colleagues in, in other unions who are thinking, hang on a minute, service users... The executive council, and you've got a large executive council, over 70 uh, places on that council, I believe, and the staff all working in harmony. How does that work? (laughs) I'd love to tell you it always works works in harmony. I think one of the things that was particularly important to me was trying to get some sort of strategic framework to help that harmony. So those four strategic pillars, and they were really tested by COVID, but having that mission statement so going back to the ppe example we really thought internally because we were going to be the first major organization to come out and say no this is a real issue yeah. and it is a trade union issue because fundamentally a safe working environment is fundamental absolutely. to absolutely uh, trade absolutely. union but equally there was that bit do we really want to because there was a lot of um, supporting of the government's position and everything else how do we want to do this in as safe a safer way as possible and that's where coming back to our strategy 
and coming back to that mission statement of we look after doctors. Yeah, it's been a great discussion, very full of really interesting, thoughtful, thought-provoking insights. Tom, thank you very much and best of luck to you in the BMA going forward. Thanks so much, Simon. I've enjoyed that. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, the interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. My guest today is Rita Guit. Rita leads the Nigeria Labor Congress's Department of Women and Youth and is the secretary of the NLC's National Women's Commission. Rita Guit in Nigeria with the Nigerian Labor Congress. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sister Shona. Earlier when we were talking, you mentioned Mile 12 Market in Lagos. And I wonder if you could tell us about that market. It's an international market, especially for people in East Africa. And so that means you also have migrant workers that are there in that market. Children are there, their families, and then people take advantage of uh, uh, the women workers, including minors. So we discovered that there was no code of conduct, whether on sexual harassment or uh, gender-based violence of any kind in the market before that people are free to come in and put in whatever cases of gender-based uh, violence that they have suffered in, in the market, they can do that. And then we train the leaders of the market, uh, the women uh, the, and also uh, the men and also the, the union, because the amalgamated union is also affiliated to the Nigeria uh, Labor Congress. So we work together with them and then the NLC, uh, National Women Commission and the NLC in Lagos to be able to... Uh, uh, to do that. And, and that was because, and then we translated the, the anti-GBV uh, code into the different uh, language, the language that we understand. And that for us was uh, the turning point because now we could hear it in the language. And uh, we also work with them to develop materials and jingles aired in them in the uh, local language and all of that. And then I would say that because of the awareness raised and the anti-GBV tax force that we, we had, we were able to have a test case of a, a man of about uh, 44 who, was, uh, who defiled a minor of 15, and the case was uh, taken to, to court. And because of uh, the networking, especially with the uh, international uh, lawyers assisting, the case was taken to court, and I said that, in fact, it's one of the cases that we are celebrating because we were able to get uh, uh, justice and the man has been demanded in the prisons, uh, which I think serves as a deterrent. And Rita, that, that story gives me the chills to, to think about that accomplishment. I, I think a lot of listeners you know, have heard words like sexual harassment or violence against women. And when they think about that at work, you know, it might be different people thinking about formal workplaces, offices, factories. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you did this work in a market that millions of people visit a year at any one time, not an organized workplace like people might imagine. And yet finding women, interviewing them, learning their experiences, 
and then working together to generate education and awareness and posters and jingles and songs on the radio that educated people about unacceptable behavior. The idea that transformed into a legal case against a man who perpetrated violence against a young woman is a very, very powerful outcome. I wonder, since that happened, Rita, have you spoken with more women in that market? Are they aware of the changes that are coming as a result? Yes, we've been able to talk to some of them because the chairperson of Lagos is also a woman. So it is easy for them to relate with. So we're able to share with them, especially when the judgment, we got this uh, judgment and there was a lot of jubilation. People were happy. Now they know that, yes, they, uh, they can report and something will be done. And uh, it, it was also very strategic for us because uh, the informal uh, sector workers, uh, most times people don't you know, prioritize their issues. And because of the C-190, that covers everybody, every workplace. We have to serve, especially those of us in the NLC, as a voice to the voiceless. Because most of the time, there is nobody to listen to their stories. But we had to listen to their stories and we went through it all and we developed this together with them. And they have. Uh... I really want to thank you for this really inspiring story, Rita. Thank you so much for talking to us today. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers. Dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. Welcome to the checkout, John Youngston, Shipping Department, HelloFresh. Thanks so much for making time for us. Tell us a bit about your job at HelloFresh. What do you do? I work in the shipping department on the AM shift, uh, where I primarily load trucks 80% of the time. And when I'm not operating equipment used to load, I assist with other roles and duties within our department. So tell us a bit, what is HelloFresh and what's the job been like lately? HelloFresh is a company that provides a service that allows consumers to receive boxes that contains different ingredients that can be conveniently prepared without the need to ever step foot inside a grocery store. And judging by the increased volume and mandatory overtime due to business needs, I'd say that the company is doing very well. Tell us a bit more about what it's like to work there, especially during and through uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. With the increase in business, the workplace has become very disorganized and chaotic, making it very unsafe and hazardous. COVID created an entirely different problem as far as how easily it could be spread just from being in close proximity to someone infected with COVID by way of routine tests outside of the normal temporal scans upon entering the facility. The six-foot distance at all times was non-existent, and we were forced to work throughout the entire pandemic as our employer put profits ahead of our safety and making sure that we were able to work within a healthy environment. 
Just a pretty straightforward question then. What got you interested in forming a union at HelloFresh? My passion for joining and supporting the union is because I want to see the, the system that corrupts the workforce and ultimately affects the working class completely eradicated. My parents worked their butts off to little or no avail due to a system that allowed employers to benefit from all of their hard work without any entity to ensure that the employee was taking home wages associated with the growth of the company. I've worked for a company where our voices have been silenced and neither management nor human resources takes employees into consideration outside of daily jobs. We're organizing because we demand that the company treats us like human beings and that they provide benefits and livable wages associated with the cost of living in Richmond, as well as the Bay Area. So how has HelloFresh reacted to this union campaign? Uh, they've hired anti-union consultants to come to our facility and hold captive meetings designed to intimidate and intervene with us, activating our federal rights to organize. They spread rumors and promoted fear by giving misleading information about the process itself and what will happen if associates decide to vote yes. And that's just pretty much a bunch of the things that they've done to get in, in, in the way of the process that is taking place. What should our audience know, especially coming from someone like you, who you work in shipping, you, you stack pallets, you run forklifts and pallet jacks. What should our audience know about how we should improve the food system? Just by being aware of everything that happens behind the scenes as it relates to preparing the meal kits that ultimately arrive at the doors of millions of families across the country and making sure that the company providing the services living up to their mission statements by ensuring that all employees and associates are given the best possi possibility available to grow and to, and to develop within the company and provide at a level that is conducive to the cost of living and what it takes to survive. Also to be aware that their support goes a long way as far as holding corporations accountable for making sure each associate is well mentally, physically, and emotionally, and that they invest in programs and research designed to focus on mental health for the employees, putting it all on the line to ensure each customer experiences magically, as the company refers to experiencing in itself. John Youngston. AM Shipping Department, HelloFresh, Richmond, California. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy work schedule to speak with the checkout and best of luck out there. Absolutely, thanks for having me. This is State of the Unions. I'm Tim Schlittner. And I'm Carolyn Bob. We are very honored and excited to be joined today by the 
new president of the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, Jimmy Williams Jr. Jimmy, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim and Carolyn. It's a great opportunity to discuss what's going on, I guess, in the world. Yeah, lots to get to. So I wanted to ask you about, you came into office August 1st? This September 1st, officially. September 1st, officially. Okay. And Liz Schuler was elected by the Executive Council August 20th. Obviously, different circumstances, Ken Rigg Maiden retiring and Rich Trump got passing away. But I was wondering if you feel any kinship with Liz as two new younger labor leaders coming into office at this moment. I personally have had the opportunity to get to know Liz over the years, and I'm excited about what she brings to the future of our labor movement, for sure. The circumstances that she took over, you wouldn't wish that upon anybody, but probably nobody more uniquely positioned to meet the moment, right? And yes, I do. As somebody who is also young and stepping into my role as a young general president at 43 years of age, I do think that it presents an opportunity to take a look at our movement a little bit differently and really drive a strong organizing agenda at a time where the country is moving in that direction. We need to meet this moment. And there's no doubt Liz is the right person to do so. And her team is too. You just hit on a little bit about bringing younger people into the movement, people of color. Talk to us a little bit about the programs at The Painters, where you are really trying to work on building a diverse membership. Jimmy, have you gotten any pushback inside your own union, rank and file or whatever, on the advocacy for immigrant workers? Have you had to have those hard conversations? Absolutely. There's a segment of our membership that prefers to blame the worker, that the immigrant worker's here to take my job and lower my working conditions and lower my wages. And we've had to have difficult and ongoing conversations with our membership. And I gotta be honest, you can't win over everybody. Our membership is reflective of society, just like any other organization of this size. But as leaders and as leaders of our union, we challenge our leaders not to run away from that hard issue. It's an education point. It's an opportunity opportunity to have a longer discussion with the membership about the realities of how the economy works, of how their jobs are impacted by employers that choose to exploit workers. Because what we've seen, sadly, is while it may start with exploiting an undocumented worker and stealing an undocumented worker's wages, that translates into the non-union workforce regardless of documentation. When that becomes the way an industry works and an industry becomes modeled, it's not the undocumented worker anymore. It's everybody that chooses to work in the industry. And that really impacts our members' upward trajectory. All right. These are quick, fast, easy, supposed to be fun answers, but we'll see how they go. (laughs) Alan, you want to start? I will start. Can I do a two-part start? Because I think I know the answer to the first one. Okay. Okay. Favorite sports team? Philadelphia 76ers. Okay. And will Ben Simmons ever play for those Sixers again? No, no way. He would get booed off the court the minute he stepped on the court. No way. There's second chances in Philadelphia, but not. (laughs) Not that. Not always. Not that. Okay. Trust the process. Trust the process. (laughs) It's been going for a while for the Sixers. Last concert. Oh my God. I have no idea. Pass. Um, passing is not an option. (laughs) God, can't even think. Maybe like Pearl Jam in the mid nineties. I haven't been to a concert a long time. Pearl Jam. All right. We'll take it. All right. First job. My first job was delivering pizza. What pizza place? Oh my God. I don't even remember the name. Was a local joint? Yeah. Okay. Uh, What's your favorite snack? Favorite snack. I can't make this too Philly and say a soft pretzel. (laughs) I'm going to go with 
My favorite snack. Jeez, snack. I'm going to say a soft pretzel. There we go. You answered all the questions about all the bills in Congress, all the tough stuff. I think a snack question might have been, you know, your hardest question. Yeah. All right, Jimmy, do you have any final words for listeners? Any final messages? The last thing I would say is just thank you guys for the opportunity to introduce myself a little bit and talk about my views on the world. Uh, God forbid, I don't know how many people actually want to listen to them, but now's a great time with all of the different strikes that are taking place and workplace activities. It's just an exciting time in the labor movement. And I would just implore anybody who's listening to visit a picket line, go shake hands with the strikers, show support, use your voice online, your voice on the streets and let's continue to just push 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 here here we're excited to have you in the movement so thanks for spending some time with us thanks guys encountering challenges making decisions confronting struggles, and better understanding the reasons for polarizing positions are but a part of being engaged in our nation's ability to discuss and advance towards a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. El Desvio presents listeners with 30 minutes of provoking discussions on relevant issues we face as a nation. Buenos dias, mi gente, and welcome back to El Desvío. I'm your host, Pablo Stein, and joining me today is guest host, Carla Pineda. Carla, welcome to El Desvío. Thanks, Pablo. Great to be here. We hope you enjoyed the kickoff to our second season with that great conversation we had about our victory on banning clefidicos. Today, we're here to talk about another very important issue for nuestra comunidad, the Latina pay gap. And if you're a LACLA member or ally who follows us on social media or email communications, we hope by now that you know October 21st was Latina Equal Pay Day. And October 21st is the day we observe Latina Equal Pay Day because it represents the amount of time this year that the average Latina would have to work to to catch up to what her white, non-Hispanic male counterpart earned in 2020 alone. We'll be listening to Andrea Delgado of the UFW Foundation interviewing Iracema Garza, who recently republished a report in collaboration with the American Association of University Women on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Latina women. Iracema, it's such a pleasure to be with you today, sharing space with you. It's been many years since our time together at the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, so let me just share how great it is to be in your presence and learning from you and sharing uh, great findings of a report that you've worked on. Tell us a little bit about that. First of all, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to see you and to work again together once again, right after so many years. So I'm very happy and honored to be here. And thank you for asking about my report. I authored, I was a lead author for a report on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Latinas. One of the things that I've been thinking about, Andrea, for a long time is how our community continues to grow and how invisible we are to the centers of power. And so ultimately with this report, I wanted the public to hear Latinas in their own voices and to hear about what's going on in our community. I often say that when there's a policy debate on the Hill, we're lucky if Latinas are a footnote in that debate. We are completely absent from the media, 
I look at the media sometimes in disbelief, right? At Even during Hispanic Heritage Month, there's very little being said about Latinos or Latinas. I think we're invisible in many ways to our representatives. And not just the public in general, because while there's some coverage of Latino community, we want to make sure that Latinas are not getting... Well, not only that, Latinas, absolutely. But in general, we have very little coverage. Look, let's take El Paso. Do you remember El Paso, the massacre of El Paso, based on what? Based on hate for Latinos, right? How many times do you ever hear it when, it, when gun control is being discussed? Rarely. So if that's the case in a place like that, imagine about Latinas, menos. And we're these invisible and, and silent constituency that on the other hand continues to grow, continues to contribute to this economy that is becoming more and more interconnected with the economic success of this country. And nobody is really paying attention. So the picture you're really trying to paint for us here is just the contrast that we're a growing and robust community, but at the same time, the irony is that we're lacking in representation, not just in the media, but in sectors across the country, in positions of power, in the policymaking debates, and in some of the benefits that you found are so critical to the economic security of Latinas. And to the economic security of this country to be able to compete in the future, they need us, basically. Absolutely all those things are correct. And the reason that I think we can contribute $1.8 trillion to the U.S. economy in 2019 as Latinos, right? An amount twice as big as the GDP, the gross domestic product of Mexico, that Latinas control about at least 50% about where those dollars are being spent, that we continue to grow as a community and as a political powerhouse, if you will, and yet at the same time, we're invisible. We have high numbers of poverty, we have discrimination at all levels, and, um, and that there's gotta be a way that we use our political and economic muscle to address some of these things. And the way that I think we start doing that is that we need to start teaching those in power like who we are and why they should care. And this was one way that I wanted them to hear what a mom with three kids and cleaning houses and then COVID hit and being hungry and not being able to figure out where they're going to, how they're gonna feed their children. and not eligible for anything because even though she's lived in this country 25 years and paid taxes, she's undocumented. So all the ills, that's one thing that COVID did, Andrea, that I think it was like pulling back a curtain and just showing the country sort of the economic challenges that our Latinas have. Who's most economically vulnerable? Exactly. We'd like to thank you for joining us for another episode of El Desvío and remind you that we're a proud member of the Radio, Labor, and Podcast Network. If you'd like to discover other shows about working class issues, go to radiolabornetwork.org. Muchas gracias y hasta la próxima. Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. 
from Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. In this episode, our political director, Ryan Zinn, talks with Jim Goodman, who was a dairy farmer for nearly four decades. And together, they trace what the push for more and cheaper milk has looked like from the perspective of a small farm in Wisconsin. When Jim was taking over the family farm in the 1970s, the landscape of U.S. agriculture was changing. So we don't have family farms today. We got a family with a farm. Farming is now big business. Farming is now science. The modern farmer has to be, his inputs are science, our technology, our capital, our management, a little labor. He doesn't put in much labor anymore. Richard Nixon's agricultural secretary, Earl Butts, is famous for a get big or get out sentiment. This was the policy coming out of Washington at every level. Farming is big business. But by the time the Reagan administration took over, any semblance of fair farm prices was gone and it was strictly whatever the market will provide you. And that's when I think the small farms really started going out. When I started back on the farm, we were milking 35 to 40 cows. And as the amount of money we had to spend for our inputs started rising a lot faster than the pay price for milk, we either had to decide we're going to milk more cows, which a lot of neighbors did, or we're going to try and figure out some way of extra income that doesn't involve milking more cows. I remember the day we switched to the organic milk truck from the conventional, the milk price was about the same. Within a few months, the conventional price had dropped almost in half and we were still at $18. So we thought we made a good move there. And uh, the organic price continued to rise as more people decided they felt safer buying organic products. The market for organic products was growing fast. And then with the growing market came more and more people hoping to make money off that growth. But they weren't in it with a holistic goal of better farm practices. Instead, more people wanted to get into it because they saw it as a way to make more money. And when that happens, people try and find ways to get around the rules. So now we have organic dairy farms, for example, that to the average person, if you looked at them, you'd see there's really no difference between them and conventional confined dairy farms. I think that the organic standards have rules in the books, but if you don't enforce them, what good are they? And really that was the reason we had to sell our cows because uh, big organic dairies were able to ship milk from Texas to Wisconsin for a lower price than what we were getting and we just couldn't compete. Just as small dairy farmers 20 or 30 years ago couldn't compete with the big farms, we couldn't compete with the big factory uh, organic farms just because they weren't following rules and USDA wasn't forcing them to. While prices were initially higher for organic milk, that relief didn't last. The same market pressures that pushed Jim and his family out of the conventional market continued to squeeze them in the organic market. Once again, small-scale farmers built a market niche, and now it's being used as marketing for the big guys. And I say marketing here because let's be clear, that's what it is. But here's the thing, fair trade isn't just a metaphor or a marketing slogan. There are actually huge trade deals in which dairy plays a significant role. So the USMCA basically told farmers that we're going to open up Canadian dairy markets and, and we'll have all this big export. 
But those promises were just a lot of talk. You look at the size of the dairy market in Canada, I think Wisconsin produces more milk than Canada does. So the only way to get rid of it is to force someone somewhere in the world to take it off our hands. And of course, in order to do that, it has to be at a fairly low price. And then in order to keep the farmers here in business, because they're forced to sell grain or milk or whatever at a low price, we have to have government subsidies. That's how we got to the point where President Trump was so enthusiastically pushing a trade deal that would reduce market protections for Canadian dairy farmers to give U.S. dairy farmers another place to sell their milk. If we were to saturate their market, which we could do in a matter of a few years, we'd be exactly back where we were again, because I just saw a report yesterday on Wisconsin and national milk production. In the last year, it's grown, not just in overall volume, but in production per cow. So we keep producing more and we may find a market here or there for it, but eventually that's saturated and we've got to find someplace else. So again, we need to go back to those 1930s programs and have supply management so farmers don't just keep overproducing and expecting someone to, to buy that and then the government to subsidize us because the prices are so low. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. I'm your host, Dana Geffner. Thank you for listening. And that'll be it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I hope you enjoyed gobbling up this week's highlights from the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you're still hungry for more podcasts, take the gravy train to our website at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Apologies for being such a turkey and stuffing this outro full of Thanksgiving puns, but I did want to let everyone know that we will be off for the holiday next weekend. We'll be back the first week of December, I promise. Sorry again, but I just can't give it up. I am what I am. This week's Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was hosted, unfortunately, by me, Mel Smith, edited by Patrick Dixon and myself, produced by Patrick with Chris Garlock, and promoted on social media by the one and only Harold Phillips. Have a great weekend and lovely Thanksgiving holiday.